Well, I really uh, love to think of myself as being somebody who doesn't get easily angered about uh, silly things in life. Um, if you talk to my wife, my children, maybe even my work colleagues, maybe they'll disagree with me, but I think it's true. I don't get easily angered, but there are a few things that really irritate me quite quickly. So since I, I'm preaching, I think it's a good opportunity, isn't it, to get these things off my chest. Uh, so the foil seal on a new jar of coffee, I hate it when people leave part of the foil on the jar. Okay, now this is a completely different category, but it's a similar issue. A tub of margarine, when somebody leaves the foil seal on the tub of margarine after it's been opened, that's just wrong and it's unbiblical. <laughs> and then there are children, uh, when they fail to disentangle their underwear from their trousers before dropping their dirty washing uh, on their bedroom floor. And then, of course, there's the dishwasher. Why cannot people organize the cutlery by type? Knives with knives, forks with forks, spoons with spoons. Now, there are all the unforgivable sins in my world. There is one forgivable sin, uh, which is people posting their Wordle scores on social media. Uh, that really gets my goat. God bless you if you do it. Yes, I do see it, and yes, it does irritate me, but it's the forgivable sin, so it's okay. I wonder what is it in life that really, really gets your goat. That thing that if it happens just makes you really, really mad. Well, in our scripture reading today, as we continue our journey through Advent, looking at the cast of Christmas, we discover Mr. Angry. And Mr. Angry's blood is absolutely boiling. And it's not an exaggeration to say he is not a happy bunny. I'm, of course, speaking about King Herod this morning, and I'm talking about his response to the visitors that come to him from the east. Now, his visitors were the wise men, as we might know him, or as I prefer to refer to them as, as the Magi. Now, here are a group of people who are the stories of myth. These are the people who have had so much fake news spread about them. Now, if you've grown up in the Western church, you'll automatically have a picture of three individuals who are coming from the Orient and they're bearing gifts. They're walking slightly stooped over and they're dragging camels behind them and they're following a star which stops over the manger on Christmas morning. They go into that manger, they find the baby Jesus lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, the problem is almost none of that, apart from the bit about the star, is accurate. There probably was more than three of them, not to mention an entourage that would have probably been traveling with them. Believe it or not, they were probably not called Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. And they almost certainly never saw Jesus when he was a baby. In fact, at the time when the Magi discovered Jesus, Jesus was likely to be running around as, as a toddler. He certainly wasn't laying in a manger in a stable. Now, I don't want us to get all bogged down this morning in uh, debunking the myth issue. Uh, that would be a complete waste of our time. But what I do want us to see this morning is the range of human emotion that is captured in the story that we get to look at today. The range of emotions that exist when uh, we hear of the revelation of Jesus. And in our scripture reading this morning, what we're going to discover is all of these emotions from anger to pure wickedness, from sorrow to absolute joy. Now, we find the story of the Magi in Matthew's gospel, and Matthew has shared his genealogy, and then he immediately focuses on the response of Joseph to the news of Mary's pregnancy, which we were thinking about some weeks ago. 
And then there's one angelic appearance, do not be afraid. And then Jesus is born with a surprising economy of words. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, six words, Mary gave birth to a son, pop. It's obvious that Matthew's gospel was written by man, isn't it? If only all labors only took six words. So if you've got a a Bible, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read in several chunks this morning, beginning at uh, verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? What a brilliant question. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah who was to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd to my people, Israel." So in the opening words of this passage, we discover Herod, and he's absolutely furious. The story begins with the Magi, these educated individuals who have come from the east, and they're seeking nothing less than the king of the Jews. And as they inquire in Jerusalem on their way through, they start to catch the attention of King Herod. And I want to suggest to us this morning that King Herod has actually been unfairly characterized throughout history by his fury and by his jealousy. But Herod, in this moment, hearing of a rival to his throne, he becomes absolutely mad with rage. Now, I'm not sure that's a fair characterization of Herod for the whole of his life. When I think of Herod, I think of this kind of Hulk-like, angry uh, figure who's just raging with jealousy. At the time the encounter happens with the Magi, Herod, at this moment in time, has been ruling over Palestine for nearly 40 years. Now, you'll know from elsewhere that Herod is referred to as being Herod the Great. And I want to suggest he's known as Herod for great, for the Great for good reason. Despite his bad reputation here, Herod was the only ruler in Palestine to have ever kept peace and stability in that region. He was a brilliant architect. He was an incredible builder. He was a, a visionary leadership uh, leader. Not only that, but Herod could also be an incredibly generous individual. There are stories told of, uh, uh, of Herod that during difficult times, it wasn't unheard of for Herod to say to people, you don't need to pay your taxes for a season so that you can survive. Can you imagine that for a moment? BCP saying to you, you don't have to pay your council tax. I mean, what a blessing uh, that would be. There are stories told about him that during one particularly difficult famine, he actually melted some of his own gold so that he could buy corn for his people who were starving. Can you imagine Rishi uh, doing that for you today? That's a rhetorical question. Please don't answer it. But you see, Herod actually had something of a problem because he had one, at least one, deep character flaw in his life. Now, that one deep flaw sabotaged so many of his really good qualities. He could be a man who was suspicious. He was a man that really struggled with the thought that other people might come and rival his power, and he was paranoid about anyone who might plot against him. So as a consequence, we discover that Herod actually murdered his own wife. Herod murdered 
his mother-in-law. Oh, an interesting thought. I'm still thinking about it. Herod assassinated three of his own sons. Herod was a man who wiped out anyone who claimed any kind of power from him. So what we have here is a man who's very insecure, a man who's more than just a little bit Jekyll and Hyde. He had amazing good qualities, but too he had some character flaws. So when these visitors come from the east looking for the king of the Jews, you can just imagine his reaction, can't you? There is only one king of the Jews, and by the way, that is me. No one is going to take that uh, title from Herod. So in his anger and his paranoia, as we'll read on in a moment, he decides he's going to get rid of all the babies who are aged two and younger in the area of Bethlehem. The very thought of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the real king of the kings, makes Herod mad, and he rejects any notion that anyone else could ever have power or dominion over him. Now, perhaps a reaction like that to Jesus is nothing new. In fact, I think it's a reaction that's been repeated throughout history ever since. It's not unusual, is it, for the very mention of the name of Jesus to make some people angry. In fact, Jesus said that that would be the reaction of some people to his name. I wonder if you can think of a time when you've been trying to share the good news of Jesus or just in passing you've mentioned the name of Jesus and you've been shocked or even taken aback by the overreaction of hostility that you face from somebody else. I know I've been there and I'm surprised by it. The one that I've come to know and love, somebody else can respond to with such incredible hostility. Now, of course, what you often discover is people are not so much angry with Jesus or hate Jesus or mad at Christ. Actually, they've had a bad experience of Christians and they've had a bad experience of the church and we need to repent for that. But somehow that bad experience gets projected onto the person of Jesus and people can become really mad about him. But of course, this isn't only a challenge for others, is it? I wonder whether or not there have been occasions in our own lives when even as followers of Jesus, we've gotten mad at Christ. When events in our life have taken a turn for the worst, we get mad at the King of Kings. When a loved one has suddenly become ill or tragically died, we get mad at the King of Kings. Maybe there's been a season in our own lives when things have been so difficult and so intense that we've doubted our experience of God and we've rejected even for a season the very idea of having any kind of faith in him. We get mad at the king of kings. So in Herod, we see one response to Jesus, to feel angry, to reject him, to reject his lordship over our lives. But here's the thing. Our rejection of the lordship of Jesus do not, does not minimize his kingship or his lordship over us one bit. Jesus is and always will be the king of kings, regardless of our response to him. And that's what Herod discovers in our story. He's mad, but Jesus is still the true king of kings and the king of the Jews. Well, let's read on in the story, verse 7. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said to them, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report that to me so that I may go and worship him. Now, Herod undoubtedly has some really good um, aspects to his character, but he has a dark side. And actually, don't we all have something of a dark side? 
And Herod's deceptive nature is perhaps best revealed when he covertly says to these wise men, would you go and find the child? Because you know what? I really want to worship him too. If you discover who this new king of the Jews is, come and let me know so that I can bow down so that I can worship him. Of course, what we know from the story is that his intentions were far from worship. Herod's only desire was to eliminate Jesus and his reign. And perhaps his response in this moment reflects something of the reality that all of us actually can be led by ulterior motives. It's a reminder, isn't it, this morning that anything less than 100% commitment to Jesus is to risk the possibility that that uncommitted part of us might just sabotage that which really is committed. Because Herod was unable to locate the exact whereabouts of the child, he resorts to this awful, this cunning plan, and he instructs the Magi to report back to him. But don't you just love in in the story, and this happens over and over and over again in the Scriptures, that the all-knowing God comes and the all-knowing God intervenes. The all-knowing God is not going to let for one single moment a relative minnow, even Herod, to trash his plan for the salvation of humanity. So he warns the wise men, as we'll discover in a moment, to go home via a different route. And in that moment, the all-knowing God thwarts Herod's wicked scheme. But Herod's response has left me wrestling this week. And left me thinking, are there parts of my own life where I'm 90% committed to Jesus, but there's 10% of me that isn't fully committed And you know, I know the risk of my own journey of faith is that that 10% can actually sabotage the 90% which really is sold out for Jesus. I guess Herod's deceit reminds us here that even somebody who has relatively good character actually can succumb to, to the pervasive nature of sin. Some people will sabotage the 90% so that they can pursue the 10% because of their selfish goals. And just maybe this Christmas time, it's a really good time, is it, to examine our own hearts and say, how sold out for Jesus actually am I? Are there areas of my life where I'm holding things back from him and I'm not surrendering that aspect of my life to him? There's a risk that anything we hold back might sabotage that that we're actually willing to give. So in our story, we discover Herod, he's mad, and in this moment at least, Herod is bad. The bad bit of him is trumping the good part of him. Well, let's read on in the story. I want to jump to verse 16, and then we'll come back to the story in a moment. It says this, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Now, Jeremiah is looking back here to an event in Israel's history, the massacre of the innocents, and he refers to Rachel, who was considered to be the, the mother of Israel. It says, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As Herod's deceit is exposed, hundreds of innocent children in Bethlehem become victims of his rage. What a detestable situation. And the sorrowful cries of mourning mothers begins to fill the air as they weep for their slain children. 
This is such a tragedy, such a sad reminder, isn't it, of the consequences of living in a fallen world, the consequences of rejecting the lordship of Jesus. But perhaps for us this morning, as we light our candle for peace, it's a timely reminder for us, isn't it, that the actions of insecure, power-hungry individuals, especially leaders, can have devastating consequences on the lives of innocent people. Here's my prayer this morning. Lord, have mercy in Israel, in Palestine. Lord, would you bring peace and stability back to Bethlehem, to the West Bank, to Gaza. Gaza. A little town of Bethlehem. Lord, we pray this prophetically. How still we want to see thee lie. You see, as this dark story of, um, of Herod unfolds, in his madness and his badness, he ends up creating in the area he was called to lead, incredible sadness, and the innocent end up paying the price for the sins of the powerful. Isn't it tragic that history is just repeating itself yet again? In a broken world, we have this opportunity as God enables us to be agents of healing. In a broken world, which is full of despair and difficulty and darkness, we have this amazing opportunity to pray for peace, but also to speak out for peace. As I hear this story, I just want to pray, Lord, don't let my leadership become something that causes difficulty and despair for other people. And maybe you want to make that your prayer over your own life too, that, Lord, my actions wouldn't be the cause of sadness in the life of others. Let's come back to the story. It ends on a real positive. It ends on joy and it ends on gladness. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, uh, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it had rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country via another route. What a stark contrast this is from the response of Herod. He was mad, he was bad, he created sadness, but here we discover these wise men, these magi, joyfully worshipping the newborn king. And I just love the words the scripture used to describe them. It says they were overjoyed. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, could be the translation. Exceedingly. It's like Mr. Kipling joy. Exceedingly great joy. They celebrated, they rejoiced, they accepted, they worshipped. And in that moment, they experienced inexpressible joy. I love how these magi respond when they discover the gift that Jesus was. When the Magi went into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down, they worshipped him. They opened up their treasure chests and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's the response of hearts who have discovered the most amazing gift. They offer their adoration, they offer their praise. You'll notice what they didn't do when they went into the room and they didn't stop and worship Mary. They didn't stop and somehow speak about the star and worship the star by saying, this amazing star led us to here. They didn't worship Joseph. They didn't take a selfie to kind of capture the moment of encountering Jesus, but they bowed down before the baby 
because Jesus was the only one who was worthy of their adoration. He's our saviour and he's worthy of our adoration. This amazing journey ends in this incredible act of humble adoration. And as I finish, I just want to point out that this is a four-stage journey from the head to the heart, and it's a journey that each of us can take if we haven't already taken it. The first thing they do is they study the facts. I think the question they ask is absolutely brilliant. Where is the one who's born to be king of the Jews? Or in other words, is there a savior? And if there is, where do I find him? It's a great question to wrestle with. And I wonder if you've ever wrestled with that question. If, is there a savior? And if there is, where do I find him? And if you've ever asked that question, or if you do ask that question, then you'll know that's going to take you on something of a journey. And it's a journey that involves some risk. As you take that journey, you're going to have to proactively journey with uh, the question that you've asked in the first place. But what I love about these wise men is that their desire for truth is stronger than their fear. And I just wonder this morning whether there are some of us who have entertained the question, is there a savior? And if there is, where do I find him? But have never gone on that journey because fear has stopped us taking that journey. In these magi, we see their desire for the truth, to discover the truth is stronger than their fear. So they go on the journey. And then thirdly, they come into the presence of Jesus and they worship. What do they do? They offer their adoration. They bow down. They get down on their knees to honor the one who they've discovered. Their worship is sacrificial. They open up their treasure chests and they give their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh. Now, I don't have too much gold. I couldn't find any frankincense and there wasn't much myrrh kicking around at home. But that doesn't stop me worshiping the King of Kings. I can get on my knees and I can adore him. And then finally, the text says, they make their way back home. They go back to their everyday lives. They go back to being magi. But they don't leave Jesus behind. They take Jesus with them, having had an encounter with him. There's this lovely touch in verse 12, which says they went back by another road. Now, of course, what that means is geographically, they went back a different way to avoid Herod and all the complications that were going to be caused. They geographically went a different way. But I wonder, too, as they traveled back, that they went home a different way, no longer walking down the wide path that leads to destruction, but maybe walking down the narrow path that leads to life. You see, when we encounter Jesus, we walk a different way. We follow a different path, the path that honors him and the path that delights him. And I wonder if this Christmas time you can say that you're walking that path, that you're walking it not just with joy, but with Mr. Kipling joy, exceedingly great joy. That's our invitation this Christmas, to walk with exceedingly great joy. And we can do that when we have discovered the Savior. So as we journey into Christmas, eight days away, will we be like King Herod and simply reject Jesus? Or will we be like the visitors from the East who ask a great question, is there a Savior and where can I find him? Who are then willing to go on the journey, who then come into the presence of Christ and who are then transformed and walk a different way. It's my prayer for you this Christmas time, that you'll discover the Savior and that he'll bring you exceedingly great joy.
Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this story captured in Scripture. And Lord, we realize that the story of these magi has been been the, the story of great myth. But maybe that doesn't matter. Still, there's so much to learn from this story about the response of these magi as they encounter Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray for us today, if we're that person, those persons who have asked the question, is there a saviour, but we've not yet been on the journey to to discover the truth, to encounter him, Lord, would you help us take that journey over this Christmas season? Lord, if we're somebody who this morning has taken that journey before, but for whatever reason have gotten mad at Jesus or maybe fallen out of love with Jesus, that Lord, this Christmas time, you'd stir in our hearts that we again would have that encounter with Christ, with the risen Christ. Lord, thank you for the invitation this morning to walk a different path. Thank you for the invitation to enter into a journey of discipleship with you, which leads to life, life in all of its fullness. And Lord, we recognize that path is not easy to walk. Why? Because it's a narrow path. And narrow paths are difficult to navigate. But Lord, thank you that you go before us. And thank you that it's a path that leads to life. Lord, as we head into this Christmas time, would you give to us exceedingly great joy as we worship again the King of the Jews, the King of Lords, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and the name that is above every other name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.